Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. New at 6, a Virginia law may prevent police from easily verifying whether a serial killer could be linked to even more crimes. Before Alan Wilmer Sr. died in 2017, police say he killed at least three people in the 1980s, including a young woman in Hampton and two of the Colonial Parkway murder victims. Authorities are now asking whether Wilmer took even more secrets to the grave. There could be an easy way to find out, but it's not being done. Tonight, 13 News Now Investigates asks why. Tonight, authorities are asking whether Alan Wilmer Sr. could be responsible for more than three murders. And we believe he will be linked to a number of other unsolved homicides in Virginia. Bill Thomas's sister, Kathy, was one of the first victims in the Colonial Parkway murders. Thomas wonders if Wilmer also killed his sister, and he thinks DNA could be the missing link. His profile needs to be uploaded to CODIS, and we're very concerned that it has not yet been uploaded to CODIS. CODIS is a government-run DNA database that links criminals to DNA collected at crime scenes. Virginia State Police say they can't upload Wilmer's DNA into CODIS because he was not and never will be convicted. But in Virginia, people charged with murder get their DNA taken well before conviction at the time of their arrest. For this crime, had he been arrested in Virginia, they would swab his cheek for that, yes. Ashley Spence, the founder of DNA Justice Project, says there's just one glaring problem for state police. Wilmer died in 2017 with a clean record. He has neither a conviction nor a violent arrest, so his DNA profile will stay out of CODIS, possibly keeping other unsolved crimes from easily being linked to him. CODIS is a very, very good system. It's very regulated, which I think is a good thing. But then you come into circumstances like this where you can see an opportunity, uh, you know, for improvement. We checked with more than 20 different sources for this story and found some police departments aren't waiting around for CODIS. In Hampton, police are reviewing all sexual assault cases that match Wilmer's M.O., in Suffolk, police recently checked Wilmer's DNA to see if he was a match for one of their unsolved cold cases. And in Virginia Beach, the cold case unit just reviewed dozens of unsolved murders from the 70s and 80s to see if Wilmer was a match, including the 1983 double murder of two women whose bodies were found in the Chesapeake Bay. At the time, a detective thought they may be looking for a local boater who knew the waterways well. But after taking another look at the case last week, investigators say Wilmer is not a suspect for now. Other police departments told us they are taking a wait-and-see approach and will take action if and when any of their cold cases get a hit in CODIS. DNA is science, you know, it's truth, it's accurate. DNA is what ultimately linked Wilmer to three cold case murders. Now, as police work to build a timeline on Wilmer's life, 
It could be old-fashioned police work that links him to any more. And here's one more thing I learned with this investigation. CODIS is capable of something called a case-to-case -case hit, meaning the three recently solved murders could hit on other unsolved cases if the suspect DNA is the same. I've posted a much more in-depth story on 13newsnow.com to answer more questions that you might have about this case, including why Virginia State Police say the three recently solved murder cases are not yet considered closed. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell, and part two of a conversation I've been wanting to have with Bill and Kristen, and I promised my listeners that that would happen. So today is the day, despite the fact I'm full of sinusitis, so apologies to all my listeners. I sound like a cross between Kermit the Frog and Darth Vader, which isn't great, but I was determined <laughs> to have this conversation with Bill and Kristen. So go ahead and introduce yourselves, please. I guess that means me. I'll try to not sound like Kermit the Frog. I'm Bill Thomas. I'm the older brother of Kathy Thomas, who together with her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, are the first two victims in the so-called Colonial Parkway murders in Virginia. And I'm the co-host of the Mind Over Murder podcast with the lovely and talented Kristen Dilley. And I would be the lovely and talented Kristen Dilley. I am the co-host of the Mind Over Murder podcast. I am also a writer, a victim's advocate, a teacher, and a number of other hats that I can't really recall right now because it's been a very busy and stressful day. So we're recording on a Monday. It's um, been 21 days since a press conference where it was announced that there was a confirmed suspect, Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. and what was confirmed was that he was responsible for two of the Colonial Parkway murders, what, two murders, but in one event, which was David Nobling and Robin Edwards, and that he was also responsible for raping and killing Teresa Howe. And not much more was said about the Colonial Parkway murders, and we discussed that in part one. And I'm hoping in part two that we can discuss a little bit more about what's gone on with the investigation since. I know you're both still very much involved. I've been doing a lot of digging as well and research. And of course, a number of things have come out about CODIS and has the suspect, the confirmed suspect's DNA been loaded onto CODIS to hopefully link other offences. And we talked about that in our last episode, but other things have now happened, which have been absolutely mind-blowing. So who wants to kick off, Bill or Kristen, of wherever you want to go with it? I do definitely want to talk about CODIS, and I would really like to just talk about some of the other potential similar offences, because that's what law enforcement are asking for. They're asking to help with the timeline and for members of the public, particularly local people, to fill in some of the gaps in terms of the timeline of Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., well, I'll start with the CODIS thing, and then we can throw the insanity to Kristen, because she always handles the insanity stuff really well. <laughs> Sounds good. So, well, we're going through a very interesting exercise here. It appears that the regulations, not the laws, I learned a lot more about this even this afternoon, of the Commonwealth of Virginia state that a person that has not been convicted of a felony cannot be put into CODIS. This is not law, but policy. And so this is something that Kristen and I very much want to explore. And we're hearing from a 
ton of people in Virginia and across the country that are completely baffled as to why we wouldn't want to put Alan Wade Wilmer Sr.'s DNA into the CODIS system in order to see how many other links would be created through his DNA to other solved and even unsolved cases. One law enforcement advisor behind the scenes has said to us, he thinks there may be a reluctance to put Alan Wade Wilmer's DNA into CODIS because it would, as he put it, blow up like an effing Christmas tree. Mm -hmm. That is, they think that Alan Wade Wilmer will link to so many other unsolved rapes and homicides that this is going to be overwhelming. Further, some of these law enforcement sources are also saying, very unfortunately, there is a strong possibility that in addition to this man, Emerson Stevens, who was released from jail a couple of years ago after serving 31 years for the murder of this woman, Mary Harding, another victim from 1985. Uh, Mr. Stevens clearly did not kill Mary Harding. He's been released from jail now. But what our law enforcement sources are saying to us behind the scenes is they think there are a number of other people who are either currently incarcerated, may have died in jail, or maybe even been put to death for cases that actually should properly be attributed to Alan Wade Wilmer as an offender. And you can see how horrible a situation this would be for all of us as, as people, not to mention all the folks in law enforcement who are now going to be forced to go back and take a look at who knows how many cases to analyze whether or not people have been wrongfully convicted, perhaps even put to death. It may be sitting in jail somewhere in some prison in Virginia for cases that they actually are not guilty of. Well, firstly, let's talk about CODIS and it being policy, because when I saw your tweet, Bill, saying that it was the law and there was an article that he, it's Virginia law that his DNA couldn't be uploaded onto CODIS, I just scratched my head. I just could not understand why you would have a law that would protect and enable serial killers. That just made no sense to me. So what I noticed in the article, it didn't describe the law, but I did tweet the governor, Glenn Youngkin, and asked for him to review this and to fix it because no one wants serial killers going undetected but being greenlit and enabled. So I thought that was interesting. And so the policy, it's actually policy. Who would write such a policy like that without thinking through the repercussions, the unintended consequences? And particularly when we're in present day, you know, 2024, I mean, most cases do hang on DNA and forensics. So I'm curious about when it was written, who it was written by, and what it is. Do we know? We don't know those answers yet, but our team is working on finding that out. This isn't something that's just available on the internet. We're actually doing some digging. And some of our team are reaching out to the governor's staff to ask, because as Kristen can tell you, Virginia's made a lot of very significant strides in terms of testing and moving forward in crime prevention in a way that we totally support. I'll let Kristen talk about that a little bit more. 
Yeah, our Attorney General, Jason Miares, a couple of years ago announced that they had finally managed to end the backlog. They had cleared the backlog of untested rape kits. And part of that was as a result of some Saki grants that had been given to allow for that kind of testing. And I remember thinking this is an absolutely massive victory. How wonderful. Um, And it is, absolutely. But taking into account the fact that we are currently protecting the rights of a dead serial killer over the rights of families like Bill's and other families who may have loved ones who were murdered by Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. I find that completely inexplicable. And I'm gobsmacked by this because I think Bill is right. I think when they put him into CODIS, it's going to light up like a Christmas tree. Just some of the different cases that we are considering ourselves that may be part of Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., I'm looking at a list of six right now in front of me that I think he might be good for. And it, of course, is going to be law enforcement's job to come up with those links. That is not our job. We have way too much going on for that. But I I don't like the fact that, you know, keeping him out of CODIS essentially is protecting the rights of a dead, proven serial killer rather than allowing families like Bill's to have the answers that they need. And I, I find that reprehensible. It's unfathomable. I mean, I just cannot understand it. When I worked at New Scotland Yard, we wanted to clear cases up. We wanted to ensure that particularly if we identified somebody who was a serial rapist or a serial killer, that we would want to look at all those that are unsolved and his anchor points and timeline him and do all those things. But if there were forensics, of course, you know, a lot of my job was looking at all the opportunities that existed. So looking at behaviour, but geography and also potential forensics that might be available given that testing changes, the sensitivity of it changes. So we were always, or I was always asking for things to be retested. So it blew my mind to see that, that we talked about the resistance that there seemed to be, but now it's to come down to a policy and people not problem solving that. That's the other part that I find quite bizarre. I mean, certainly in the UK, when I've worked on cases and I've seen that something isn't working and we need to fix it, I would raise that at a local level, a national level, and at a parliamentary level if it was required. That's why I changed laws so many times, showing evidence that we needed to change things, and particularly as you know, our knowledge about stalking, for example, increases. That's where the stalking law came from. And we know that there are predatory stalkers like Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. And we want to ensure we maximise all opportunities to identify and detect someone like him. And I do wonder about how many cases are out there that just were not looked at properly when they initially happened. And, And I have to say, when I was talking to Catherine Miles, and of course, we talked as well last year, I was absolutely shocked about how many stranger attacks on lone females there were in Virginia. And we we talked about that and that I'd worked at the FBI, which is Quantico in Virginia, and yet we'd never discussed the cases that were unsolved or the possible linked cases that were on their back doorstep, basically. And now digging into this case, what's really interesting is a lot of my listeners and followers, well, they're very thoughtful people and they've been sending me cases, local people that know the area far better than I do. And as they've sent me things, I've been analysing what they've sent. And I have to say that a number of them are really interesting cases and I have contacted um, Virginia State Police and I've given a whole spiel about who I am 
and that I am somebody who is accredited in this line of work and have been very successful in this line of work. And I've offered them some insight for free and my analysis for free. And I started with flagging the Amber Lundgren case, which one Mm -hmm. of my followers sent me. And this particular follower, I'm not going to name them because I'm not sure whether they would be happy for me to do that. But it's somebody who is uh, a a professional who has extensive experience working in prisons and really knows and understands behavior from what I can tell of what their communications are with me. And we've talked online, but also in DMs as well, in direct messages. And the Amber Lundgren case, I know you were both included, I think, in that thread. Amber was 20 years old and she was last seen leaving Barcode in Asheville, North Carolina, in the early hours of June 7th, 1997. So when I saw that, immediately I'm thinking about the date and I'm thinking about the geography. And I'm thinking about Teresa Howe, who was seen leaving a club at 2.30 a.m. in the morning. And I'm looking at this picture of Amber and I'm thinking she's a dead ringer for Teresa Howe. Mm -hmm. Not in terms of being identically similar, but in terms of victimology, there are things that just visually stand out immediately. The, The hair, I will say that Teresa and Amber were attractive women. They both went to nightclubs. And within hours, their bodies were found. And I think that that's important too. What the two pictures, the graphics that were sent to me was actually the appeal for information and detailed that, and I'm going to read it out, that a few hours later, her body was found in a ditch on the side of Azalea Road near a pile of her clothes. She'd been stabbed and there were defensive wounds to her hands and arms. Okay, so that tells me that the pile of her clothes, she'd been told to take clothes off and that she'd been stabbed, but she fought for her life. So this is somebody who had defensive wounds and he, unfortunately, whoever he was, overpowered her. Now, the police did release a composite drawing of a man seen off Azalea Road between 3 to 4 a.m. the morning that Amber was killed and a witness saw the man and an older model work truck near where her body was found. And the truck was dark in colour, possible navy blue and faded. I mean, this truck just, when you think about the images of Wilma Senior's truck and saying that it was a work truck and faded and that the man that was described, and there's a composite drawing of him, was white, aged between 20 to 45 years old, stocky, medium height, dark reddish brown hair and a beard. And even visually, it's striking to me, right? It really jumps out at you, doesn't it? Right. And we had received reports as well from people who were looking into this, who put the Amber Lundgren case onto our radar. Apparently there were significant storms in June, 1997 near Asheville. Great tornadoes and and windstorms. And so there was a lot of tree damage. Now, by this time in his career, Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. has transitioned out of largely being a waterman, crabbing, oystering, fishing, etc., and into being a tree man, uh, somebody who cuts trees and cleans up storm debris. And one of the things that our listeners were saying to us is that sometimes people in this fields like this will chase the work. So in other words, if there's a big storm and a lot of trees are downed in a particular area, they'll go there 
and stay there for a couple of weeks because there's a lot of work to be had in a fairly short period of time. So it's not at all a stretch that someone as mobile as Wilmer could have made his way down to the Asheville area to help with the cleanup. He would have made a lot of money in a short period of time, just working long hours. But it's not out of the question that he and his work truck could have been in Asheville at the time of the Lundgren rape murder. So I put a call myself into the retired investigator who's still handling this case. I didn't hear back from him. And that's no big deal. He's probably getting hit with a lot of people reaching out to him. But I hope that someone is checking any evidence in the Amber Lundgren case against Wilmer's DNA. Absolutely. And I did get an acknowledgement actually from Virginia State Police. So that's good that there's an acknowledgement. And I didn't expect to be told what they would do with that. But I do think it's important that the cases aren't just talked about in a podcast, that we actually do flag them. And, you know, for me, this is a striking case. And when you add in, Bill, also the storm and just that he would have legitimate reason to be there. I mean, I'm not local, right? But when I looked at the geography, it's very viable to be moving, you know, geographically to this particular area, North Carolina. And whether you're a tree surgeon or you've got, you know, tree service company or waterman, or even if you are a predatory stalker, just targeting young women coming out of clubs. Because, you know, there is this notion, and some might say, well, they met in the club. There is nothing to suggest that. And I do want to make that clear that I have worked many cases where perpetrators have waited outside looking for women who have been drinking alcohol, and they literally picked them off. They may offer them a lift home. They turn up, you know, to be their knight in shining armor. And because they are, you know, they've had a few drinks, they might be more malleable to get into a, a truck and someone saying, well, I'm local, let me just help you out. These things are perfectly possible, right? But there is also another scenario. He may be in that area. He may go to the club and actually see and pick off people in the club and then follow them out. There's multiple ways that lone women can be targeted. But I have worked many cases where perpetrators actually wait outside and they know that you're that women are vulnerable, they'll be coming out when the clubs kick out and they'll be looking to make their way home and they're there to scoop them up. But the defensive wounds suggest to me in Amber's case that whatever transpired, she was not a willing participant and she fought for her life. And this is a case that really must be considered. And any forensic opportunities must be exploited because, you know, yes, there may be multiple serial rapists. There might be multiple serial killers using the same MO. But in my experience, actually, that's less likely. It can happen. And I have worked cases where there are multiple perpetrators, but where the MO is so similar and exploiting vulnerability and the timeline of the cases. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. 
Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Along with another case was flagged to me and it was, her name was Belinda Ann Ashburn. And this case is also very interesting. Belinda was 33 years old and in 1988, her body was found floating in a canal in Currituck County, North Carolina, on the Virginia and North Carolina line. So right on the border. And again, looking at her picture, the way that she looks, the victimology, again, it may be the reason why she's been targeted, but even more so, these other facts stand out to me, that Belinda Ann Ashburn's car was found earlier that day at the south end of Blackwater Road with keys in the ignition and the front door was open. So left open, but a purse containing $300, her shoes and clothing and some of her personal items were, were left on the seat. In other mm. words, it's not a robbery. And not even close. And this is true in, the, in a number of the Colonial Parkway murders, not large amounts of money, but money left in wallets. You would think if robbery was even partly a motive that someone would take whatever cash was available. And how peculiar that she had $300 in her wallet, which is a lot of money in my world. And it's, it's just sitting there. That's clearly not the motivation. No. So the question would be, what is the motivation, right? She was obviously driving in her car and somehow she's come to a stop. Well, we know that Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. would knock on windows and would try and stop cars, stop vehicles. And the fact that her key was in the ignition and the door was still open 
So for me, this sounds like it was a targeted power and control sex crime. And, and this again was in 1988. And of course, there are similarities with Keith Cole and Cassandra Haley, because that too, they disappeared in 1988. And it was believed with Keith's car that somebody else had parked it and the truck was found or his car was found abandoned on the Colonial Parkway. And of course, their bodies were not found but what's interesting is in the article, the, one of the articles that was sent was Keith's father, Richard, saying that he had to do his own detective work when his son disappeared. And also, similarly, with Belinda Ann Ashburn's father, Robert Zunheld, he said that he had to investigate his daughter's murder and he had to interview anyone and everyone who might know something. And I'm going to quote him. You never get over this type of thing. I never sleep anymore unless it's with a sedative. I spend three to four hours a day running leads. And both the fathers said that they were trying to get their daughter's cases, national TV coverage on shows like A Current Affair and Unsolved Mysteries. And the article said that they were still waiting for a decision. Mm -hmm. So simple. it just seems, yeah, very similar, Bill. And what blows my mind, my, my immediate reaction is, what is going on that fathers and family members have to investigate the murders of their loved ones? And why aren't these cases being linked in such a tight geographical area? How many other cases are there? There were so many points that I wrote down and the lack of urgency that there seems to be for women turning up dead or couples going missing or turning up dead and them not being linked and family members being left to investigate and trying to get national coverage and the lack of interest in national coverage. Well, again, it just shows us why this is so important to do, to talk about these cases, right? Which is what we're doing. Right. And this is exactly what Kristen and I have been doing with the Colonial Parkway Murders families is seeking additional publicity because your case goes cold and then they actually... Law enforcement actually throw this back in your face. Well, you know, your sister's case is a cold case. You know, one of the FBI agents said to me, when I first got involved in Kathy's case in 2009, he said to me, well, your sister's case is at the bottom of a very dusty pile. And then his FBI superiors, when I quoted him back later to his bosses, not to call him out, but to let them know that I felt there was no urgency in their investigation into my sister and Rebecca Dowski's murder. They actually denied that he said it. And I said, you know, we're on this conference call with senior FBI people and people tell me they're not used to being talked to this way and I don't care. I said, we're not going to insult each other's intelligence this way. If you don't think your sister's case is at the bottom of a very dusty pile, isn't burned into my memory from Agent Hanlon saying it, don't think that you're going to be able to look at me on this conference call or this Zoom call and say, he didn't say that. That's not going to wash. But this is the kind of attitude that you see oftentimes in these cold cases where they just sort of blow you off. Bill, I'm so sorry that that was said. I just find it so egregious that somebody would even say that to you and think that that's okay on on a humanitarian level just as one human being to another i just cannot comprehend how someone would say that and then to lie about it i mean it, it's really terrible seeing 
fathers, brothers, you know, so many family members just desperate to chase down leads. It it tells me how much they they feel that they've been let down, that they have to play the detective and that no one is interested in joining this up when it's so local. It feels so local to me. And we know that perpetrators do travel. So when you've got someone traveling from Virginia, you know, and I've looked it up on a map to North Carolina, South Carolina, I mean, people do travel. And if you've got a job that takes you from A to B or there's been a storm and therefore that would take you there, it's highly likely. And that these individuals will travel. And the other point to say is that when offenders, what we know about serial perpetrators, when they first start offending, so early on in their offending careers, they tend to offend close to home. So they will travel only within their own anchor points. So where they work, where they maybe drop their child to school, where they drop their wife to school, those key anchor points, where they go to a gym, where they go to the hunting club, you know, they would tend to offend around those anchor points because they're comfortable there. But the more that they offend, the more they push out and they tend to go elsewhere. And your anchor points, you know, particularly if you're someone who's transient, of course that changes over time. Because if you're a waterman or if you're a hunter or if you're a tree service person, then of course you've got to broaden it out to look at other geographic regions. And I have to say, it it always blows my mind when I talk to law enforcement, when they say, well, Laura, this case happened in X. So that's the Metropolitan Police's case. And this one happened in Surrey. And that's another jurisdiction. And they are absolutely firm that this offender couldn't just get on a train or drive in a car or get on a bike and go five minutes up the road or have one foot in one jurisdiction, one foot in another. And it, and it always blows my mind that how stuck in rigid thinking that law enforcement are and that these perpetrators, of course, they don't want to get caught. So they only really have to do the smallest amount of modifying their behaviour to be able to get away with it. And let's face it, there hasn't really been too much energy being placed in proactively investigating any of these cases, I would say. That might be unfair, but I do feel that there seems to have been the barest minimum done before declaring the case cold. Agreed. And as Kristen and I have talked about many times on Mind Over Murder, offenders know how things work as well. And as you're saying, all they have to do is drive from one town to another town or one county to another county, whatever it is, and they can reoffend. And as we've seen in the Colonial Parkway murders and so many other cases, the lack of coordination between agencies and the crossing of jurisdictional boundaries by offenders result in people literally being able to get away with murder. Yeah, but then you've got the CODIS issue. Add that in, then really we are just green lighting. You know, I think back to passing polygraphs. What does that tell each offender? You know, I did listen to your episode with Lisa about the polygraph and she stated very clearly it's an investigative tool. It's a tool, much like behavioural profiling, that if something like an eyewitness or like his behaviour or weapons or paraphernalia being found and like him knocking on windows of cars in that target area and being identified for doing that, if that comes in, that should override the investigative tool. And I think the FBI agent knew that of who really felt in his gut that this was the right person. And he 
didn't continue to pursue it, i.e. push. Maybe he did push for proactive surveillance to be placed on him. I mean, that would be the normal thing to do, not just, you know, like a water ski rope, just let it go and throw it and just say, oh, well, the polygraphers said X, so I'm just going to back off and, you know, I'll swear at him, but that's it. Because his gut, I believe, said that this was the guy. And when you have a gut of an experienced officer saying that, not just based on those four points, but everything he knows about him and when he talks to him and interviews him, I always say to officers, follow that. Follow that and ask more questions. Don't ever just put it in a box and walk away from it because that will be the thing at three o'clock in the morning you're still up thinking about 25 years down the line. It will eat away at you because you didn't do everything that you should have done. And I say that in training every time. It lives and resides with you If you are a conscientious and thoughtful and dedicated and committed officer, and I just feel, you know, Wilma Senior being greenlit from that polygraph must have made him feel 10 feet taller and that he's like the invisible man being able to do exactly what he wants. So what does that mean in practice? It means that he was probably very prolific. And when did he start, as when we talked about, when did he start hunting humans? And did he start hunting humans with his brother? You know, I have worked cases. They're extremely rare where you get a double-handed team of male predators working together. They're extremely rare, but they do happen. And normally they have a very close relationship. Best friends from, you know, the age of primary school, Um, to brothers, but they are thick as thieves and they trust that what they're doing is absolutely okay and it's reinforced by other people around them. And oftentimes those other people around them are family members who stay quiet when they're doing things and also law enforcement who look the other way, who allow them to rule the roost in a geographic area for whatever reason they're allowed to. And That is absolutely unacceptable. It's very rare that it happens, two of them together. But it's possible in this case, given the movement of cars, given women being stopped. And I was looking at pictures of potentially Keith's white truck that had a yellow siren on top of it, right? So if you are in tree service, maybe you have some hazard lights or warning lights, and maybe it could be mistaken for by panicking women or panicking couples, law enforcement. When you're in a panic doing something that you know you probably shouldn't be doing and an authoritarian figure flags you down, it could be how they're stopped and one might be in a boat. It's possible, but we've got cars being moved. We've got time being spent at scenes in each case. And Belinda's case, again, it's just striking to me how she turns up dead, raped and killed, and yet there's no investigation how is that even possible? I, I, this, this, I'm baffled. How does that even happen? Well, I'm baffled too. And I, I just have such tremendous empathy for her father, Robert, who clearly was absolutely devastated by this. And you know this, Bill, so I don't want to teach you, you know, anything that you don't live. But a murder has such repercussions on every family member and on the community, it absolutely devastates. And that's why, for me, it's such a travesty that these cases just weren't taken seriously. It's a ripple on the pond and how many people's lives are torn apart and enabling an offender to carry on or locking up the wrong person, which allows the offender to carry on. And even now, and I'm talking about Mary's case, 
Mary Harding, who we talked about before. Again, one of my listeners flagged Mary's case to me and we posted the article. You know, a man, as you mentioned, Bill, went to prison for 31 years and it was proven that there was an officer who coerced people to give falsified testimony. Therefore, that man was released after Deirdre Enright stepped in from the Innocence Project. And it is not okay for people to say that he's guilty and that that case is solved because a court of law found otherwise. So I know that there are complex family dynamics locally, but these complex family dynamics mustn't be allowed to take hold and stop further questioning of your family, Bill, and other family members to get answers to who murdered their loved ones when you've got a very significant and confirmed suspect who's been identified. Questions must be asked, and they must be asked of Mary's case and every other unsolved case that exists in Virginia and the surrounding states. And that is quite right that that happens. Yeah, we had this very strange situation that just happened recently. I'll leave names out of this, but a family member of Mary Harding's commented on our Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page where a lot of people, we have 20,000 people following two pages, the Colonial Parkway Murders page and the Mind Over Murder Facebook page. And people are very upset about this case and very upset about the fact that the case seems to have been neglected. There's exciting news, of course, by having Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. identified via DNA as a confirmed serial killer who's killed at least three people and likely more. But then we have these very strange situations where a member of the Harding family reaches out to us and basically is telling us, and this isn't too far off what she said, she's basically telling us that we need to get over this and let it go. And that she was strongly implying, I felt, that we didn't have a right almost to be asking the kind of questions that Kristen and I and tens of thousands of people who are following this case are asking. I responded to her politely. Kristen's very helpful. She'll talk me off the cliff, get me calmed down. You know, the, <laughs> the Irishman gets very fired up and then she'll dial me down. And um, I did respond to her in a way that I thought was polite and respectful. And I said, I, you know, I was sorry for her loss. She, she is related to a Mary Harding, but at the same time, I'm kind of thinking to myself, I'm not going to put this in writing and I'm not looking to have a public argument with someone who's also lost a loved one to violent crime. But at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, where do you get off telling us to zip it and go away quietly? We're not going to do that. And quite right too, Bill. I did see the exchange and I have to say your response was very thoughtful and compassionate. And you can hold compassion for someone and tell them to foxtrot Oscar at the same time, right? <laughs> and that that is important. You held compassion for her because she has lost somebody too in very brutal circumstances. But point is you can't tell someone else to stop asking questions when they're case is still unresolved. And it's important that questions must be asked. And what I'll also say was that she talked about the fact that people from outside 
Virginia and outside the local community should not be involved and should not ask questions. Well, I'm going to say the opposite, actually, and I'm going to say we must be involved. There must be independence and we must ask questions. And the whole point is things have gone horribly wrong because it's been left in an insular way without an outside lens holding any form of accountability, and that is not okay. And just because the families are entwined locally, and I understand the dynamics are complicated and complex, and therefore there are loyalties, and there's all sorts of probably twisted narratives that have been handed down as well, because we know for a fact that Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., did commit these crimes. And we also know that law enforcement want to timeline him and piece things together. So somebody vouching for him, I'm sorry, doesn't carry much gravy for me of saying, oh, he's not that guy. He was always very nice. What it does tell me was that he had the ability to be Mr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And it tells me that she has been hoodwinked and others may well have been to think that his one thing were actually his not. Now, that's important insight, too, because you always learn something. But defending him is probably not the smartest thing to do on the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page. Yeah, this wasn't just some random place. These are people that are concerned about the murder of eight young people. And this man has already been linked via DNA to two of them and linked circumstantially to two more. So... Why in the world do you go to the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook group and start telling us to zip it and go away? By the way, note to self, Foxtrot Oscar. It's the polite version, Bill, because us British are very polite. I know. We love that about you. Always very polite and perfectly mannered. Both Kristen and I, I could tell, you know, I can see her on the screen here. We're obviously in different places. First of all, I laughed and then I wrote it down and I glanced out and Kristen was doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're taking notes oh, yes. on, on the important parts. Look, I think you were very respectful and, and that's everything that I've always seen of, of both of you. But I think it is important that you are allowed to be curious and test everything. It's very important that we test everything. You test the metal and... Law enforcement have to be independent and objective at this stage. They clearly have lost a lot of time in this case. And I just really hope that they are not entwined in these dynamics and being able to see the wood through the trees. And, and that's where independent people, having consultants, having people like me on their shoulder is a very important part of the process because you're not pulled in to those dynamics. You look at the facts and the evidence very clearly. And the, the facts and the evidence are that we have multiple women and young people being targeted. And we do have a number of offenders who potentially may be operating together. And I mean, two brothers in particular, and it doesn't mean to say they did everything together, but there could be a case where at least a number of were carried out by both of them together. And that cannot be ruled out at this stage. And so I really do hope the right questions are being asked of the right people. And it does really show the importance of podcasts like this, talking about cases and people locally being able to put things up to people they trust. And that's why I thank my listeners for taking this so seriously and for sharing vital previous offences that may well be linked that 
because they're not on a murder index, they're not on a murder database anywhere, they can be missed. And I was always reliant on, on community intelligence, community information and the job that I did at New Scotland Yard. And you turn that intelligence into information for action. And I'm so pleased that people feel they can trust me to handle that information still. And I really hope that the Virginia State Police and um, Norfolk FBI aren't blowing these things off because I know that multiple people have shared these cases. I'm jumping in here to wrap part two. Firstly, I wanted to share some new information since we recorded. Regarding CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System, Virginia State Police say state law requires someone to have a conviction on their record before their DNA profile is entered onto the government-run CODIS. That's their statement when asked about it by 13 News, and you can click on their article in the show notes for more information. That's just mind-blowing to me. It should be really straightforward when a person is dead and when they're a serial killer. A conviction is something this dead serial killer has somehow avoided throughout his life course and unfortunately will never have. So this law must be updated and modernised to take account of situations like this. Also, I talked about 20-year-old Amber Lundgren's horrific murder in Asheville on June 7, 1997. Her body was found on Azalea Road after she left Barcode. Amber was the designated driver that night and she'd promised to call a cab if she did decide to drink. Well, that night she got separated from her friends and she asked the bartender, who she knew, if he'd seen them. When he said he hadn't, she left the club around 3am and most likely went to another club looking for them. Now, as she was driving, she wouldn't have left without them, her friends said. Well, apparently there is DNA in the case, and so as well as contacting Virginia State Police, I also reached out to the detective in Amber's case just to ensure it's been followed up and that the I's have been dotted and the T's have been crossed. Now, although he's retired, he seems highly motivated to solve Amber's case and her family and friends are desperate for answers, just like Bill and his family. You know, it's particularly poignant right now because on February the 7th, Amber would have been 46. And it's quite right that her family continue to ask questions and her mother wants her daughter's case to be discussed and that families never give up. And neither should we. We should all be asking questions and trying to shine a light on cases to ensure that there are answers for families. They need to know what happened. So lastly, I just want to thank you lovely lot for listening, for trusting me and for helping with the case. I'll continue to shine a light on developments and try and assist where I can. You'll have to tune in next time to hear the rest of this fascinating interview with Bill and Kristen about other potentially linked cases. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. 
Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude.